Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Hello there, Brendan. It's good to see you again. It's been a long time. A long time? That's my line. I appreciate my lines. Let me do it one more time. From one, I haven't seen you in such a long time, Brendan. A long time. Jason, Did you know? directing the show now? I, I, I guess he's decided to. Uh, Mr. Guinness, uh, I, I guess you can just proceed. Thank you, Jason. You're such a kind young man. I, I came by today specifically, you see, to talk to you about last week's movie, The Lavender Hill Marvels. I wanted to give you a bit of exclusive trivia, if you would have it. Okay, shoot. Yeah, I'd like. I'd love to hear that. Yes, if, are you familiar with a, a science fiction picture I did in 1977? was yes, called the... Star Wars. Uh, yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. Yes, yes, quite quite an interesting little picture. Not my cup of tea, you see, but uh, we all have bills to pay, don't we? <laughs> of course. Yes, yes, of course we do. Now, uh, a bit of trivia. When George Lucas approached me for that role, I said, George, go fuck yourself in the deepest ditch. But he was persistent, you see. And during our conversations, when he'd forced his way into my home and taken my wife hostage... He said to me, I want you to play a sort of space wizard. And I said, I like that idea, but I have an idea of my own. And he said, what's that? And I said, what if you purchase the remake rights to Lavender Hill Mall, you see? And then we have Obi-Wan Kenobi, space wizard. He's sort of, he's, he's a goody two-shoes, you see. And he spends almost 20 years working for the Empire, helping them build their Death Stars. And then, 20 years in, he decides that he's going to stage a big score. Hmm? He's going to steal as much, mm, I don't know, what What do they What do they hold of value in the Star Wars universe, I said. Uh, uh, midichlorians? That's what George said. And I said, no, George, that's in the blood. You can't keep that in a vial. I was, oh. It was strange. It was strange, you see, that I knew more about his property than him. But that's why he wanted me to be in the movie. Right. So I said, he... he he steals something. Oh, say, say a raft of TIE fighters. You see. He steals a raft of TIE fighters, and then he takes them to Batu, which is a planet in the Outer Rim. And he sells, he tries to sell them on Batu, but they are purchased by some Tatooinese schoolgirls, you see. And it turns out that these TIE fighters are actually made of um, a sort of Star Wars space metal. I don't know what you would call it, but... Uh, dunium? I think it's called Dunium. Yes, it's sure. made of Dunium. And that's what the Death Star was made out of. It was very valuable. We were trying to trade that Dunium, but instead the Tatooinese schoolgirls get it, you see, and they take it to Tatooine, and there that Dunium is discovered by one Luke Skywalker. 
And that is where our story would start. And George said, Alec, are you fucked in the head? And I said, you're the one that's fucked in the head. And he said, would you do it for a thousand pounds? And I said, yes. Wow. That's uh, amazing trivia, Mr. Guinness. That's, uh, I, I've never heard that story before, Mr. Guinness. That's a that's an incredible story. Yes, well, it was a different time, you see. It was a very different time. Anyways, I'm so glad you watched that movie last week. It was absolutely splendid. I think you two are the only people to watch that movie in the last five to ten years. It's the only, you're the only possible people who have seen it. So thank you on the bottom of my heart and sending a check to my grandchildren. Well, it was our pleasure. Our pleasure, Mr. Guinness. You're always oh, welcome. All right, then. Yes, you're well. Much nicer, you're, you're, you're much nicer than when Michael Caine comes here. Oh, Michael Caine, yes. He's a bit of a prat, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Be careful of him. Watch out for him. But I must go. Jetpack. And there he goes. On his heavenly jetpack. On his heavenly jetpack. Oh, Jason, this is um, – some scholars maintain this is what you would call a podcast. It does fit the technical definitions of what a podcast is, as established by the Oxford English Dictionary in the year of our Lord, 1999. Before podcasts oh. even existed, they'd already invented the word. I was going to say, in you're going to have to. I would go so far as to say it was Steve Jobs that stole the word pod from podcast to make iPod. And then he, and then he could claim that he invented podcasts, but he didn't. And now he's dead. So who's to tell? Mm. We won. <laughs> Um, so yes, this is a podcast. My name is Brendan. My name is Jason. And this podcast is called For Screen and Country. And on this show, Jason, every week without fail, except that sometimes there's fail, um, we talk <laughs> about movies on the British Film Institute Top 100 British Films of All Time list as curated in the year 1999. Uh, we have done a lot of these movies so far. I think we're almost up to 70 films at this point. So we are making some headway. Um, but this week, we are talking about our second of two Merchant Ivory films on this list. We're mm. talking about number 73, A Room with a View. We got some comments to read about that Lavender Hill mob, which is the movie that we covered last week. Thanks, thanks for the 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 joke, the reference to something that no one will know what you're talking about because we talked about it off air. That's great. It's just for you, Brendan. Sometimes it's just for you, and for those that recognize it. For those that recognize, we salute you, and for those who are about to rock. No, them. I just give a polite wave. Okay. Oh, you're about to rock. A good day, sir. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Me ladies, continue rocking. <laughs> <laughs> and a, and a, a joyous uh, Zeppelin to you. Uh, I wish I had a Zeppelin. God, that'd be great. Can we get a Zeppelin if we, yeah, maybe we should get a Patreon going and, and try to get a Zeppelin. I think that should be our only, like, you know how on Patreon where they say, like, if we raise this much money, we can finally do this and get advertising. Mm. If you raise this much money, we can finally put out bonus episodes. Our thing should just say, if we raise $10 million, we're just going to buy a Zeppelin. We'll buy a Zeppelin, and then we'll, we'll, we'll do the equivalent of what Joe Rogan just did. He moved to Texas and set up, like, a podcasting studio and shit. We will set up a podcasting studio on that Zeppelin. Oh, and me was... and you, and we'll go and we'll kidnap Nathan to hell with his kids we'll leave them there and then yeah, we'll set up fun. the podcasting empire from a zeppelin looking down on all the awful people that will subscribe and, and pay us money um but comments jason take us through take us through our first comment about the lavender hill mob from one of our faithful 
faithful listeners. Yes, our faithful listener, Victoria Stewart, writes in. Victoria says, super fun. This is about the Lavender Hill mob, right? Mm -hmm. Super fun. I had a friend who thought someone should do a remake at the Empire State Building. There you go. Empire State Building. Does your friend have sway in either Hollywood or, I don't know, what would you call the British film industry? Like, not London. Uh, Brit Britty Wood? Britty Wood, yeah. <laughs> and and side note, unrelated question, does your friend own a Zeppelin? Because this is going to be a big part of this. Uh... If if she has a Zeppelin, or he, you don't say, uh, then we can make this work. We can make it work. We'll, we'll put we, something together. We do the podcast, we raise the money, we do the remake of the movie, The Empire State Building. <laughs> that's no. the movie, that's the name of the movie? That's it. That's the entire time. Well, we want people to be sure of what they're seeing. We don't right. want any vagaries. That's the thing. You sell something vaguely, people don't know what to expect. If you tell them exactly what they're getting, they will come. I remember your pitch was to do uh, Citizen Kane and just replace the title with the entire script. Uh, like, you, like, you remember, for instance, uh, my favorite mo- Tom Hanks movie of the early 2000s, that dude that crashes in the plane and gets home at the end. That's my favorite Tom Hanks movie. Yeah, Castaway doesn't really drive home what that movie's no, about. No, that's um, why they called it that in European territories instead of what they called it here, which is what I just said six seconds ago. You'd think the American title would be less subtle in that regard, but... All right, well, Matthew P. Eels says, I have the good fortune of seeing this for the first time on the big screen many, many years ago. Ooh. Um, it is absolutely delightful, and I'm tickled to know that the director ended up directing A Fish Called Wanda towards the end of his career, which, spoiler alert... Still to come, and spoiler alert, I'm just going to say right now, I love that yeah. fucking movie. Oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> so, I, I, I love that movie. I'm not going to get deep into it, but that's a great movie. Yeah. And I'm excited to see it again, actually, to see if it holds up in the, like 15 years since I watched it last. Mm-hmm. All right. Our next comment comes from the uh, wonderfully named John Mendenhall. I like that, Mendenhall. You guys want to go get beers at Mendenhall? I don't mean to make fun of your name, John. I just think it's cool. For years, I knew it only for its pre-fame appearance of a certain icon, but was delighted to see that it really is a great movie in and of itself. Does he mean Alec Guinness? No, no. He's talking about Audrey Hepburn. Oh, well, I mean, Alec Guinness was an icon, too. Yeah. Yeah, but Alec Guinness, this was not like pre-fame Alec Guinness, though. Like, I think people already kind of knew who he was. That's true. I mean, yeah, he was in uh, Great Expectations. That was what, like 48 or something? Yeah, it was a few years before this, for sure. Yeah. In the Man um, in the White Suit, which we still haven't watched. We still haven't watched. I think that's the same year, or maybe the year before. All right. What's our next comment, Brennan? Susie Thomas says, For reasons unknown, I always fall asleep in the middle of this movie and wake up right at the end. I think it has something to do with the voice Alec Guinness uses. So apparently, a uh, very soothing, nice, sleepy uh, voice from Alec Perhaps Guinness. you should try the Lady Killers if you wish to go to sleep. <laughs> oh, Wow. You come Ooh. here for the harsh takes on Lady Killers, the original guys. Absolutely roasted. <laughs> Boom, roasted. <laughs> roasted, toasted, and tattooed, as they say. Our next comment, Brendan, comes from Adam Hures. The fuck is Adam, a comment, Brendan? A comment, Brendan. Uh, well, it's for you specifically, so this is, this is, whatever I say, this is meant to be about you personally, so take oh. it as such. Okay. Adam Hures says, this movie is quite a bit of fun. You're a bit of fun. That's good. You are a bit of fun. That's what I've been told anyways. <laughs> Mariah, hi. Uh, fast-paced and short makes for a great watch. Oh, That's no. like you. you. You've you long been fast-paced and short. 
right. uh, uh, temper-wise sometimes, but certainly uh, height sometimes, you know, when you shrink up, uh, uh, you sh- short money. Uh, you're short sure lots of things. Uh, yeah, but I'm a, you know you're never short hair. That's one thing you're never short. Yeah, I'm I'll, I'm a very short man for sure. That's right. Uh, let's see. Fast Pace and Short makes for a great watch. Also, uh, as I make my way through these Ealing Studio films, as you like your life, uh, starting to realize this Guinness fella is a pretty funny guy. Just like you, Brendan. You're a pretty funny guy. Thanks, well, thank Adam. I'm, I'm going to assume that comment was all for me, like Jason said. Um, and uh, But yeah, no, yeah. It, it, exactly. Alec Guinness is a funny guy. I knew him as Star Wars before starting any of these movies on the list. Yeah, so Dr. Star it Wars, is, I call him. I, his role, you know, he played that role, Star Wars. <laughs> he played yeah, Doctor Star Wars, the mentor for uh, Luke Star Wars. <laughs> Luke Star Wars. I remember they had to fight Darth Star Wars. Darth Star Wars. Yeah, that's my favorite part. You remember when Darth Star Wars was Luke Star Wars' father? Who knew? Who oh, could no. possibly have seen it coming? I mean, I just as I did, I mean, everybody had the last name Star Wars, so I didn't put it together. Um, just that was what they did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. So okay. And. I, Every time I see his name, Christopher Berry, because he is a frequent commenter, I feel like there's like a composer named Christopher Berry or something, because I feel like I recognize the name. And, it, and if that is you, Christopher Berry, if you are a composer, awesome. You must do some good stuff if I remember your name. Uh, if it's not you... Christopher Berry, I, I consider this stolen valor, and you should change your name immediately. <laughs> what would you like? What do you think they call people like uh, like people that are posers, but like they're also composers? Like they're being a poser at being a composer? Like, what would they be called? I'm not sure, Brendan, but I think you have the start of a really good rap right there. You think you're a poser, but you're just a composer. You're a poser, composer, poser. I need someone to step in on the lyrics, though. (laughs) (laughs) You can hire someone on Fiverr, I'm sure. Uh, Christopher Berry says, I feel it's underrated compared to the Lady Killers. I find it much funnier. Uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets is the superior film, but it's a high bar. I picked this one, Jason, because he's also not a huge fan of Lady Killers. So there you go. Hey, this guy. You found a uh, spirit, a fellow spirit, 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 spirit animal, spirit, spirit guardian, mate. guardian of the spirit. Okay, what's our last comment? Our last comment comes from uh, Kenneth McAllendon. McAllendon. I'm going to assume we're McAllendon or McAllendon. 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 Kenneth McAllendon. Either way, it's a cool fucking name, Kenneth. It is a good name, Kenneth. Uh, love it, he says. Certainly in contention for the best of the Ealing comedies up there with Lady Killers and Kind Hearts and Coronets. I would also recommend The Man in the White Suit, which is the best type of satire where both sides of an issue are roasted hilariously. Well, that's going to come up in our list at some point, Brendan. Yeah. The Man in the White Suit. We're still waiting. Could be soon. Could be a long time. It was funny. A um, little bit of trivia about that movie, as in trivia mm-hmm. about our podcast that no one else really knows. We almost did that as our second episode. Um, be- because remember we were going to do Dr. Zhivago. Oh no, we were going to do that as our first episode. Yes. Yes. And we decided um, to re-roll for some reason. Well, I think we decided to just pick the first movie or maybe we decided to roll. I don't remember what happened either way. It didn't work out. Listen, don't worry about it. I, I, su- I suspect we may have picked Dr. Zhivago cause that was one of the leans I hadn't seen and knew about. Unseen leans. It's oh, too bad man. we didn't call this podcast Unseen Leans. So wait, just to back up in our history for a sec, we did Dr. Zhivago, which is okay, and then we did English Patient, second episode? No, we did Zulu for our second episode. Right, okay, because if we did that English Patient for the second episode, I'd have been out. This wouldn't have got past two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> we did have some he- some some heavy movies to start for the first yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I commend you. 
I deserve it. Well, Jason, we come to the end, and what do, what do we do at the end? Well, we we find out how this compares to the American Film Institute Top 100 list. So, uh, so this movie, The Lavender Hill Mob, is number 17 on the BFI Ooh. Top 100. Uh, number 17 on the AFI Top 100 is The Graduate. Ooh, haven't seen it. <laughs> what? <laughs> but one of those movies that I, I, I know it from pop culture because, you know, you can't get away from, uh, uh, what is it? Are you trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson, or whatever the fuck he says? That's like the, the iconic line. I mean, and uh, something about plastics. But that's it. That's all I know. And Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah. You know of Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, I have no idea what the actual plot of that movie is, just that at some point an older lady uh, seduces uh, a, a young man, or at least he gets the impression that I she's feel trying like to that, that I, I feel like that idea that we had of uh, you know all those movies that you haven't seen, Jason, that's all an entire podcast. I don't know if we could do it all in this show. <laughs> we, we, we'd basically just have to do Unspooled, and you've already done that on your own. So oh, not the we... AFI movies, just movies that you haven't seen. Well, it's a, I feel like if I watched the AFI list, I'd be, you know, I'd cover myself. Now, to be fair, Brendan, I have seen a lot of movies in my life. I just haven't necessarily seen them all. I did have a period in my life where I watched a lot of movies. I've seen Evil Dead. I've seen Evil Dead 2. I've seen Army of Darkness. So. I just want to point out, for the record, Jason has seen the film Wing Commander, has not seen Jaws. Multiple times. Has not seen Jaws. <laughs> I'm saving it. Have you seen The Exorcist? Yes, I saw that in the theater okay. when they did oh, the wow. 20th anniversary okay. re-release. There you go. Um, all right. Well, that's uh, yeah. Oh, I'm gonna. Ooh, what am I gonna say here? Hmm. I mean, it's kind of a contemporary class. It's a classic. I can't. I can't. I I love the Lavender Hill Mob. It's a lot of fun. But I mean, it's the Graduate. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the Graduate. It's an important film. I've so I've been told. It's a great movie. Mike Nichols, Elaine May. Watch it. Rent it at your local Jumbo Video. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that, I think that's it. So we're going to jump into it uh, here, Jason. We're going to talk about this week's film, A Room with a View. Yes, that's right. That heavenly, wonderful, the, some of the best high notes I've ever heard. <laughs> um, that music can only mean one thing, Jason. We are talking about a room with a view. One particular room with one particular view. Are there any trees in the way? Who's to say? A fine room, a fine view. Thank you and good night. <laughs> God save the queen. That's all you get. That's all you get. The room, the view was lovely. I mean, really, I was I was ultimately and, and sorry to blow the I don't want to blow my wad so early, but I was really disappointed. This entire movie didn't take place in this one room with the view like the whole thing would play out in front of the view. Like, do you ever see the big kahuna uh, with yes. uh, Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito? Yes. And, and thank guy? you. And thank you for reminding me of the name of that movie, because for some reason in my head, I kept thinking it was swimming with sharks. That's well, that'd be a other... good name for it. Yeah, that's the other uh, Spacey movie. 
But yeah, that, that takes place in one hotel room. But I'd say go one step further, one shot. Like pretend you're Kevin Smith, one, two shot. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, because no I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure, Jason, that would have been enjoyable to watch. <laughs> you put it in my hands, buddy, and it'd be the most beautiful thing you ever saw. We're not watching a fucking uh, 24-hour Andy Warhol film here. Tell you what, Brendan, I'll make you a bet. If you can give me a $200 million budget, I can make you a one-shot movie that will be the most beautiful thing you ever saw. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna attack the logic of that right from the get go. <laughs> um, I, I only have I 175 million dollars. Actually, you know what? It's funny you mentioned that. That's exactly the amount over. I I, I added an extra 25 million just oh. to see if you take it, but 175 million turns out it's exactly what I need. God damn it! People aren't going to the theaters, Jason. I need this money back. <laughs> I need these baskets back. Uh, but yes, we are talking about A Room with a View, 1985, so fairly modern in terms of the movies on this list, yeah. uh, considering that the newest movie was like 98. Um, and uh, yeah, this is our second, like I said earlier, this is our second Merchant Ivory production, our first being The Remains of the Day with Anthony Hopkins. Um, this movie has a lot of big players in it, a lot of big names. Yes. Ooh, um, maybe yes. not at the time, but definitely now. Uh, we have leading this movie, we have Helena Bonham Carter, 18 years old at the time. Yes. Uh, a mere 14 years out from Fight Club. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, we had uh, returning to the podcast because we talked about him in the killing fields. We have Julian Sands in this movie uh, playing the role of George Emerson. He was one oh, of the reporters. I, in the killing fields. I did not know that. Not Ooh. a huge part, but he was in it. He was um, in it. We have Dame Maggie Smith. As ah. Charlotte Bartlett, old cousin, spinster cousin Charlotte Bartlett. Fantastic as always, Maggie Smith. Oh, she's so good in this movie. Um, we have uh, Denim Elliott, who I feel like we've seen in a lot of movies mm -hmm. uh, pop up time to time. But I think he has a bit more of a substantial role in this one. He plays uh, George's father, Mr. Emerson. Interestingly, uh, uh, I looked him up on Wikipedia and it, it says, you know, Denim Elliott was a British actor, uh, a stage person, whatever. Most famous for his roles as, and the very first thing they said was the abortionist in Alfie. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was. He was in that. That's crazy. I don't know. I did not... It's crazy that that's listed as his number one. <laughs> his voice also sounded really familiar throughout the movie. And I realized about three quarters of the way through, he kind of sounds like Ian Holm. He is that kind of like high pitched yeah. kind of almost whine, not in an unpleasant way, but very much like Ian Holm. You know who I thought he kind of looked like for a lot of the movie? Brian Doyle Murray. <laughs> yeah, kind of a little bit. I don't know sure. what, some, something about him. He's like the British Brian Doyle Murray. <laughs> if he just uh, had more grit in his voice. Yeah, and if he looked like he was 50 when he was like 30. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so also rounding up this cast, we have History's Greatest Monster, Daniel Day-Lewis. If you want to know remains, why that... I was going to say, was he gonna... remains History's Greatest Monster because I did not realize it was him until like the end of the movie. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. It... Ah, damn well, him. Gonna... Damn you. Yeah, we'll we'll get it. If you want to know, by the way, guys, why he's history's greatest monster, just go back and listen to any episode we did after talking about a Daniel Day Lewis movie. Was that my uh, left foot? And yeah, uh, just listen to the episode <laughs> after that, uh, mm. because Daniel Day Lewis has got one on got one on us. I'll just say that gotten a um, few over on us. It's true. We also have returning returning to the podcast another person here. We have Simon Callow, who you might yes. remember from Four Weddings and a Funeral. As soon as uh, I saw him, I was like, it's that guy. Yeah, playing uh, Reverend Beeb. Um, other notable names, just a couple more here. We have uh, making his film debut, I believe, uh, Rupert Graves playing Freddy, Helena Bonham Carter's brother, younger brother. And, of course, Dame Judi Dench. 
showing up for a few brief moments as Eleanor Lavish, a novelist. A novelist that they make fun of later in the movie. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, she's, you know, she's she's crazy, right? She, yeah. She's a novelist. A lady novelist, Jason? Who'd have thunk it? In, joking? Edwardian England, excuse me. <laughs> um... Okay, so we this movie takes place in 1907, so I think there's a little bit of context here. You mentioned it's Edwardian England. Yes. So do you know, like, I, maybe I didn't prep you enough for this, but do you know, like, kind of what's going on at the time? Well, this this is, uh, so Edwardian England is generally considered uh, a period that ranges from about 1901 when Queen Victoria died through to either, depending on who you ask, 1910, or, or even I would push it as far as 1914, the beginning of the First World War. Um, it's a it's a particular time in England. It began with the Second Boer War, uh, where England thought that they would you know have a pretty easy time with these two little Boer colonies that barely made up the population of London. But nope, it ended up being a way bloodier affair than they intended. But for a lot of people, like especially the the tastemakers, the pop culture icons of the 20s, it was this period that they look back on with nostalgia, with fondness, because a lot of these people that fought in World War One that had these life changing experiences, they grew up in Edwardian times, especially in England. And so you, it, through this movie and, and many other movies set in this period, you see this real like thick lens of nostalgia for this, these like long summers in the country and idle rich flitting about and, you know, and playing with dolls and, you know, going skinny dipping in the stream or whatever they, whatever rich assholes did in 19, you know, in the early 1900s. But yeah, so, so this, this period is a very, tinge with nostalgia period and we can see that in the construction of this movie for sure mm. um i don't know if it's it's not quite to the mythical level of something like chariots of fire but it's definitely there yeah i think i think the difference too in this movie is that it takes some shots yes like it's absolutely. not just oh what a lovely time 1907 is no it, it has some it has some qualms about that time and that's, I guess that's ultimately what kind of makes it interesting is that it is this yeah. layer of nostalgia, but still with these critiques of the old days and how things were done. Well, and because it's, it's so... clear. I was going to say it's clear because Helena Bonham's character, Helena Bonham Carter's character in this movie is a very much a forward thinking, forward looking young lady who's, you know, for the time, she's probably someone that will end up as a suffragette of some mm-hmm. sort. Because uh, uh, I'm pretty sure in the early part, they still, uh, you know, women still did not have the right to vote in the edwardian era maybe that's why some people look back on it fondly i would tell those people to shut up yeah uh, suck it boris it. johnson that's right <laughs> <laughs> they, he, he, it's not like he could exist in that society with that mop of hair they run him out on a railway that's right weirdo <laughs> Wait, wait, hold on a second. We can attack other things. You know, just just because yeah, you know what? The only thing about Boris Johnson is if he had a better haircut, right. he'd be a if he had a better, better haircut, he might be a better man. Yeah. <laughs> God, you sound and I like say a, this having no hair, so I believe I'm in a proper position to evaluate other people's haircuts. You sound like a comedian from like the fifties. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, his hair is really bad, so uh, he's a he's a he's a jerk. This guy's a real heel. Actually, that could also be a Norm Macdonald bit. Um, yeah, yeah, look at his hair. Stupid hair. But yeah, so you talked about, yeah, so we're at this period in history. Um, I guess we should maybe just run down like the basics of this plot is that we have Helena Bonham Carter is this young lady. Um, she and her uh, spinster cousin, Charlotte, uh, this very put upon self-martyring or not self-martyr, I guess martyr. <laughs> Well, well I, think, I think she I think she sees that as her kind of lot, because if she is a spinster, as they say, mm-hmm. you know, 
she got nothing else to look forward to, right? She's never going to get married. And in those days, that was very much like, well, what, what good are you, right? Well, right. one good was is as a chaperone for a young lady who could theoretically get married or get pregnant. Right. She's basically there to keep an eye on Helena Bonham Carter. And um, I got to say, so they okay. So they're they're in Italy. They're staying at a lovely hotel. Uh, they they don't like their room because there's no view. I was actually shocked, Jason. I will say this right now. I was yeah, shocked that this movie, A Room with a View, started out with two characters saying, "Our room doesn't have a view." <laughs> and I was I, like. I, Wait, I literally wrote in my notes the the view is a strong topic off the bat. Which is good. <laughs> they get right into it. They don't fuck around. It's not one of these movies with one of these like esoteric titles that is like, you know, it's a metaphor. No. They literally talk about this fucking room with this goddamn view right off the bat. I'm almost wondering cuz there's there's something about this movie that it yes, it's it's made to look like one of those like stuffy British movies, period pieces or whatever. But there's, I always felt like there was something just like kind of out of the corner of its eye, just like winking at us. Like, yeah, we know, we know you think, we know you think you know what you're watching, but we're also kind of doing this at the same time. And I wonder if that's just like the the director, like James Ivory, just being like, fuck it, start it with the most (laughs) on the nose thing possible and just make them think that that's where we're going with this. And then we could just go into the movie. But then it ends up, in retrospect, it does end up being an appropriate title because the entire impetus of the movie, the entire series of complications that happen, ultimately happen because they switch those rooms. And and early on, Charlotte's character, or the character of Charlotte, is played by Dave Maggie Smith. Uh, Charlotte says, I, she, she's reticent about switching rooms because she's like, I don't want to be basically in debt to these people that we don't even know, right? So, And obviously she's taking a little darker look at it, but it's not... It's not a crazy perspective, given that the rest of the movie, uh, uh, what's, uh, Lucy's life is forever changed because of this little exchange. Well, OK, and I do want to play a little bit of that scene, but let, let, I just want to quickly get through the basics of the story, um, the rest of the story. So, yeah, they trade rooms with these guys, George Emerson and his father. Um, Lucy and George end up kind of having a little thing or he he kisses her at least against her will which i guess was romantic in 1985 um and then you know they go back uh lucy is set to marry someone else and it's that whole thing where like you know who does she really love does she actually want to get married to this guy or is she still in love with george romance ensues Mm. we'll get into it but i do want to play that clip that you mentioned where uh charlotte is essentially wondering if she should take them up on the offer to switch rooms or not because she you know like you said she says i don't want to be indebted i don't want uh lucy to have to be indebted to these men who we've Mm. just met and by the way these men are crazy jason they have wild ideas they don't adhere to to uh manners uh or customs so right off the bat, we're like, oh, who are these? Who are these bludos that just walked into this movie? <laughs> well, let's let's listen to uh, to Charlotte um, figuring out what she should do. And we'll also hear Reverend Beebe, uh, Simon Callow, who she's talking to. This old gentleman and his son offered us their rooms with a view for ours, which have no view. It was most indelicate. But things that are indelicate can sometimes beautiful yes i am the chaperone to my young cousin lucy and it would be a serious thing if i were to put her under an obligation to people of whom we know nothing i don't think much harm could have come of accepting fair charlotte so you think i ought to have accepted you think i have been narrow-minded i never suggested that 
If you will allow me, I would be happy to act as intermediary with Mr. Emerson. I do not think he would take advantage of your acceptance, nor expect any gratitude. He has rooms he does not value, and he thinks you would value them. Charlotte, please. Well, my own wishes, dearest Lucy, are unimportant in comparison with yours. I am only here through your kindness. If you want me to turn these gentlemen out of their rooms, I will do it. Would you then, Mr. Beebe, kindly tell Mr... Emerson. Emerson. We accept his offer. That was almost a little coquettish on her part for this, this spinster. We accept. Sorry, can you explain? Uh, so coquettish, you said? <laughs> yeah, I, I was just like, like, like she was like very come hither. Like, oh, we oh. accept. Maybe, no. maybe she thinks she's going to meet this Mr. Emerson and maybe she's going to marry him. But that doesn't think, happen at all during the course of the movie. Listen, I think that's just your your attraction to Dame Maggie Smith coming through. Well, I mean, is it that obvious? <laughs> I mean, you have a full erection right now. Please teach me something, Professor McGonagall. <laughs> yeah, that is what she's in, isn't it? Yeah. And, of course, uh, as the, the, what do they call her, the, the Dowager Countess in Down Abbey. Oh, see, <laughs> I do remember her from Harry Potter, but I have, I've never seen Down Abbey, so I'm I'm, I'm lost out. there. But um, she is wonderful in this movie. Maggie Smith is yeah. so good in this movie, and right there, I think that's a. I'll I'll play something later that's I think is like the best example of her like her character and like what she's like and how she's kind of makes. Uh, is really harsh to herself almost mm-hmm. to kind of lure people in and you know i mean i wonder if it's intentional or not master this martyrdom. manipulator yeah she does kind of seem like one right she has has this like martyrdom about her but she also seems like she's she's genuine too like she that she actually i think she loves lucy um yeah. i truly do um but we do start as this we all do out. as desi did <laughs> <laughs> except that according to him she's got some splaining to do yes she obviously but, she got a lot of explaining to do by the end of it. <laughs> but I also but I love yeah. So I think she really loves her. Um, and I think the movie does its job to position her right away as not like a typical you know you'd expect her to be a villain or cruel or whatever. And this mm-hmm. scene also does something where it's like it's like it's it's making fun of it right. It's making fun of the characters a little bit because it's like look at look at what the ridiculous lengths they're going to for this simple request of like hey we'll just switch rooms with you and she's like yeah. oh well can you can you tell them that we accept this offer and the music <laughs> swells and I, again I think this could come off a different way I think this could come off as this movie is like you know it's like a pompous moment in the movie but I think it's winking at you I think it's self aware. If you want to make this totally pompous, all you got to do is switch switch everything. No no changes to the dialogue. Just put it all in American accents. <laughs> it's true. But with the British accent and knowledge of the time, this all seems like, you know, this is par for the course. This is how they talk back then. You know, yeah. overly flowery, too many words. You know, everybody had lots of time back then, so they had time to speak at length. Right, exactly. Just like us. Unlike me, a master of perfect editing. <laughs> all the time in your house and other places (laughs) in your day-to-day life you know exactly when to stop your sentences that you're saying out loud to other people preach it brother (laughs) (laughs) 
So, um, I mean, should we, we should just talk about the, the, if you want to get into the, um, put on my, uh, film glasses here, uh, okay. we got to get into the title. I mean, the title is a giant metaphor, right? A room with a view. I mean, they literally start off the movie with Lucy not having a view. She yes. can't see the outside world. No. Right. She, her, her blinders are on. By the yeah. end, baby, she's got a view of her own. And it's mostly George's face, but it's also, yes. they do have a room with a view. Um, what I do like too is, so, I mean, yeah, we get this whole idea where she's very closed off because they've got her leading this very straightforward life. Everything is decided for her, essentially. Typical, typical upper class British girl type of life back then where you didn't really have any agency at all. Yeah. Which I think makes a scene in this movie even more jarring. I mean, in a good way is when she finally does decide to go out there and kind of explore a little bit. She sees a man get stabbed. Yeah. I mean, that's a brutal talk about scene. talk about being dropped right into it. Yeah. I mean, she's in the town square and she sees two men scuffling and one of them gets stabbed and we don't know if he dies or not, but like, that's not important. We, we see her seeing extreme violence, like right there. I'm going to say he did die because instead of being hauled away by men in white coats, he was held away by men in black masks. Or maybe he's being born unto another soul. That's certainly possible. The transference is, is the transference is initiated. Yes. (laughs) That's all I got. That's all I got. (laughs) Sorry, folks. It can't all work and we don't edit. So, I mean, we do. No, no, I don't edit anything, anything at all. (laughs) Just leave it raw, including the music that we perform live and the clips that we act out. (laughs) You do a very good Maggie Smith, Brennan. Oh, thank you. And, you know, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna say it. Your Helena Bonham Carter could be better. Well, I'm. I'm more of Fight Club era Helena Bonham Carter. That's true. That is. That is your area of expertise. Wait for it. Wait for it. Here we go. I've been fucked like that since grade school. But yeah, so we get again the room with the view, the metaphor. She's going outside. She sees the stabbing. It's a very like distinct comparison they're making right away. Like this is the real world. This is the shit that's going on in the real world, and she's just like immediately exposed to it. Mm. And then right after George, um, uh, Julian Sands, who, by the way, doesn't have like a whole lot of dialogue. I thought that was no. interesting that he's he doesn't want to look pretty. Yeah. Sullen, pretty man. Uh, but he but he does uh, make it very well known very quickly that he has uh, feelings for this woman, for mm-hmm. Helena Bonham Carter. And she doesn't really know how to deal with it. It's very intense. <laughs> is, is that what the question mark was about? Was, was that just the implication of fuck me? Okay, yeah, we got to talk about that too. So the, yeah, they go in, they switch rooms, and he's got a giant, um, or he's not a giant; it's a normal size portrait. But on the yeah. back of it, he's he's drawn a question mark, um, and then he comes in and quickly flips it around. And then also earlier in the in the movie, when they're all mm-hmm. eating dinner, he makes a question mark with his food and shows it shows his plate to her. So I'm I'm not sure what that is either. My first thought was that he was the Riddler. <laughs> And this is an origin story? And this was an origin story. But so the Riddler is like 108 does... years old? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but he only does it twice. I, I thought that that might have been something that would continue to like come back up throughout the course of the movie. Mm. Uh, but visually, it did not. Certainly, questions were asked throughout the movie. So, But there wasn't a physical manifestation on a wall or a window of a question mark. I'll actually just throw it out to people listening right now. If anyone has seen this movie and kind of has a better grasp of that whole thing with the question mark, please let us know because I'm was not the, entirely was sure. Cut, was there a cut subplot involving <laughs> this, that this is the remnant of that they couldn't, they just couldn't get rid of these scenes. 
but they got rid of the rest of it. See, Batman Forever was originally filmed in 1985, and this was going to be a uh, crossover. This this entire movie was a subplot of Batman Forever that was cut from Batman right. Forever, but then assembled into its own movie. And then sent back in time to 1985. Yeah, well, obviously. <laughs> Hollywood has that technology, but they don't, they don't want to share it. Yeah, they, bastards. I could use it for good. You know, they're actually filming Casablanca next year. It's fucked. <laughs> I hope they don't fuck it up. <laughs> shot for shot, they better nail it. That's right, they better. Um, <laughs> and, and so we also get a sense of like the Emersons. Uh, George and, and his father, like we said, are are kooky, kooky and crazy. Um, yeah. I actually, well, and one, I was gonna say at one point he indicates he's like a uh, George has been raised free of superstition. Basically, and, in my mind, implying that he doesn't, they don't, they're not religious. Like they don't, they're atheists or agnostics or something, which would be a weird standout thing, certainly in Edwardian England. Yeah, for sure. I actually just want to play um, a little clip here of Mr. Emerson kind of interrupting a tour. Um, <laughs> they have like this tour going through like the art museum. I believe it's like an art museum, right? And well, I, I think it's like a, uh, actually, I think it's a, like a church, a basilica with art in it that is historical in nature. And the guy is like pointing out various exhibits and Mr. Emerson, just no worries at all. Just talk, just chatting it up with uh, yeah. Lucy. Um, just to get an example, I think this gives you a real clear example of his uh, character. Oh, Mr. Eager, good morning. Uh, you see me uh, leading a little private uh, tour of my own. Here he is on his deathbed. Mr. Eager is our English chaplain Observe here how in Florence. Now unhappily ruined by restoration, is untroubled by the snares of anatomy and perspective. Look <laughs> at that fat man there. I mean, he must weigh as much as I do. He's floating up into the sky like an air balloon. Remember the facts about this church of Santa Croce, how it was built by faith in the full fervor of medievalism. Built by faith, Before, indeed. That simply means the workers weren't paid properly. Pardon me, the chapel is somewhat small for two parties. We will incommode you no longer. Oh, oh, Mr. Ego, no, there's plenty of room for all of us. You don't have to... Um... Oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah, so we get a real sense of he's kind of anti-establishment a little bit. Yeah, and, and the fact that he made a comment about the workers' wages. I like the guy. He's got his, uh, a good head on his shoulders, and he doesn't seem to take much guff from priests. And he must have enough swing, because you'd think if he was just some random nobody, the priest would have just told him to get the fuck out. Not in those words, certainly, but... Uh, yeah, probably. well, he he does kind of at the end. Well, you know, he, he does the uh, passive-aggressive passive aggressive British thing of being like, Oh, I'm so sorry. This room apparently is not big enough for two of us, so we'll just move on. Good day! <laughs> at the same time too we see george doing this weird thing where he's just walking through the church and i think like a like a reverend approaches him or something and george immediately drops to the ground and just pretends like he's praying or something and i wasn't sure if that was like was that supposed to be like a mocking thing like was that uh it may have been a mocking thing or it may simply have been him he didn't want to talk to a priest so he figured if okay. he just get down and started to pray the priest would leave him alone <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, we get Mr. Emerson saying right away, like, Lucy, listen, I'm not, I don't, you don't need to fall in love with George, um, but please bring him out of his funk, because I don't know what the fuck is wrong with this kid. And I, yeah, exactly. It's like, I'm not going to pay for a psychologist. 
You think I'm going to send him to Freud in Berlin? Fuck that. No, I'm going to get this random 18-year-old girl to go about and fix him for me. Yeah. Because that's what they do. They fix men. Oh, no. <laughs> um. Yeah, so we get that. Uh, and on the flip side, oh, my God, Jason, my absolute favorite part of this entire movie is mm. Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, no, as I said, I did not realize until later, given that he's such a monster, uh, that he was, but, but, and it's interesting too, because I, I would say that this is not one of Daniel Day-Lewis's more like, uh, not subtle is not the word I'm looking for, but like, th- this is very much kind of a caricature. Like, like, I don't think there's a whole lot of depth to this character and yet it's, he's still fantastic. And this character is, uh, compelling to me. I would argue there is more depth than you than is like immediately apparent though. Because I mean, I think later on, especially when we get to his like characters exit from the film Mm. where we have that like breakup scene with him and Lucy, I think that is like one of the best, some of the best acting I've ever seen. It is good. It is good. And it does reinforce that he is in fact a human being. Uh, But I, 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 I I, I would nominate his character. Certainly. When we're done, we're going to have to have an award for, like, overall upper-class twit of the year, and this character is absolutely in the running. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's such a crazy... It's such a crazy... It's it's an amazing performance. And, like, Daniel Lee-Lewis, I I wasn't sure, like... I knew he was in this. I didn't know how big of a role he had, but thankfully it was a fairly good role. Fairly big role. Um, But uh, actually, a little thing about this is that he was one of the ones... Funny enough, because, you know, he's an Oscar winner now. Um, One of the ones where they they asked him, they're like, oh, you know, you should you should campaign for getting the getting a nomination for this one, because, you know, people are talking and people are liking what you're doing. And Daniel Day Lewis was like, I don't feel like it. (laughs) Could not. (laughs) Yeah, he he does not strike me as a man who is like out there, like promoting himself for awards. Uh, I think he'd rather be making a barrel or, or a shoe or something. Yeah, exactly he'd rather do one movie and then take three years off and that's kind of what he's done like throughout his almost his entire career and that's why he's a monster brendan because he's living the goddamn dream <laughs> he really is he's like well money's running low again i guess i'll do yep. phantom thread <laughs> i'll just knock out another oscar worthy performance and, yeah. uh, and go back to life i'll just do uh, a movie with paul thomas anderson i guess <laughs> <laughs> oh i gotta do another one with him oh. See, they they need to get him into like like Star Wars, right? Like yeah. he needs to have his Jeremy Irons and Dungeons and Dragons moment. Like he need we need to have a really good actor in a really bad movie. And I guess Jeremy Irons had both Lolita and Dungeons and Dragons. But we talk uh, about that Lolita remake was perfect. Nothing was wrong it was with a it. Perfect representation of the book in all yeah. forms. Not creepy at all either. <laughs> Check out, folks. By the way, little plug for something I like. Check out uh, Lolita podcast by Jamie Loftus. It's a great, uh, great listen if you're interested in the history of that book and its portrayal in society. So check it out. Free plug, Jamie. I don't know you, but there it is. All right. There we go. (laughs) But Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah, he's playing like he's playing like we've seen this kind of role before. So essentially, Lucy um, ends up, you know, George, she ends up kissing George, but George ends up kissing her uh, while she's in Italy. Uh, he's very forceful. <laughs> it's a little yeah. uncomfortable, especially knowing the real ages of the actors. Um, but she doesn't but, try to run away. Wait, okay, so no. Helen Bonham Carter's 18. How old is he? Uh, he's like 26, 27. Ah, it was fine in the 80s. That was classic 80s relationship age division. Yeah, I mean, it's not as bad as uh, as Teen Witch, where 
she was 15 and he was like 25. Or we go further back to Lolita, which some people seem to think is a love story. And, and in the book, she's 12 years old. <laughs> it's it's troubling. Um, Very. <laughs> but yeah, no, so she, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, he kisses her and she doesn't exactly, you know, shoo him away. But that's also like almost that's also James not. Bond. And I don't want people to think like, oh, no. yeah, well, she just clearly let it happen. You know, it's, it's on her. Like, no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just no, saying no, I, cinematically, she doesn't seem to hate it. Right. But it's also, it, yeah, it's almost like the James Bond school of like, yeah. hey, you know what? Uh, Pussy Galore wasn't into it at first, but man, she eventually knew it was great. You just you just work on them and eventually they'll break down. Yeah, that's oh, that's a great. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that that's how James Bond works, man. That's how yeah. it works. Thankfully, Daniel Craig, not so much, but definitely back in the day. James Bond, you could consider him the millstone of uh, relationships. He'll just grind you down. That's a terrifying notion. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she, so she, she has that moment. Um, eventually, they leave Italy and go back home. And we, we kind of, I don't know how much time passes. I'm assuming a little bit of time passes. But then we yeah. see that she's um, engaged to uh, Cecil, played Cecil. by Daniel Day-Lewis, which is the be- best name for him, by the way. Cecil also, Vice. Yeah, well, yeah. Oh, yeah, Vice. That's a great last name for that yeah. character. Also, but can you think of like a, 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 like a heroic Cecil from no. cinema history? Why am I thinking of a character named Cecil the Lion? Is that something? Mm, I, I feel like it might be, but he sounds like a coward. Ask uh, your girlfriend there. Your, oh, your digital a, girlfriend. My digital girlfriend? You mean Google? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Google. Hey, Google. Are there any good characters named Cecil? <laughs> well, I don't think that's going to work. Sorry, I didn't understand. She didn't understand. Don't worry about it. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. I got this. Who is Cecil the lion? Cecil was a lion who lived primarily in the Hawaii National Park in Matabaliland North. Oh, was he the lion that got murdered? Was he the guy that got shot? Uh, the dentist that uh, from Minnesota that shot him? Oh, that's who it is. Yes. Okay, so so that's the one good Cecil, and and that Cecil's a martyr. Yeah, much like Charlotte in this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so there you go, one good Cecil in real life. Um, but no, I don't think there's any. I can't think of any good like movie Cecils. At the very least, I can't think of any that, even if they are like not a bad guy, are still like a twit. <laughs> absolutely uh, if you want to go evil with a cecil you go one step further you name them cyril oh there's no like good cyril cyril. sneer from the raccoons yeah. you know what you know what i think of i think of uh, cecil be demented <laughs> yeah yeah i i could see the the video cover of that in my head when i said the word cecil underrated john waters movie i'll say it here and i'll say it now watch it folks you will not be and disappointed I, and i have to assume cecil b demille was probably some form of sex crim Oh, people back in the in the in the thirties and forties in yeah. Hollywood? Nah. <laughs> I'm assuming nothing bad happened back then. So yeah, so what I was gonna say is uh Daniel Day Lewis's character is uh a standout for me, and I do want to play some of his character just just talking, because I just I love him in this movie. So disgusting the way an engagement is regarded as public property. All those old women smirking. One has to go through it, I suppose. They won't notice us so very much next time. But my point is that their whole attitude is wrong. An engagement, horrid word in the first place, is a private matter and should be regarded as such. Oh. There's your philosophizing parson. 
Don't you like Mr. Beeb either? I never said so. I consider him far above the average. Oh, he's I like... like oh. He's, the, he's the worst, but he's also, like, just doing such a good job. Like, I love how, how yeah, he's like, oh, oh, you don't like Mr. Beeb? He's like, oh, he's far above the average. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's this elitist. So this guy, he's uh, he's rich, clearly. Yeah. And at one point, somebody asked him what his profession is, and he's like, oh, I don't have a profession. I feel that if, as long as I do no harm, I should do what I want. Yes, I love it. He's like, I feel like that is the best representation of decadence. Yeah, yeah, and I'm exactly. Like, You're you are history's greatest monster, Daniel Day Lewis. Absolutely, DDL man, <laughs> man, you've got this down. But but like, yeah. So, and the thing is, is that the reason I say that it isn't the deepest character because I feel like I know this type of character. Like I feel like I knew people in university that kind of had this outlook, if not as extreme, like this really like elitist kind of like looking down at everybody else and making judgments and like, oh, well, this person isn't as bad as everybody else. The rest of the plebeians and the mud, the mudbloods on the ground. <laughs> mudbloods. I, I do love how, um, so his whole thing is reading, right? Because mm. almost every scene he's reading from a book, he's dictating out loud because I think in his head, he's like, everybody wants to hear me read. This is the guy. This is the guy that, if he existed in like the last thirty years, he would be like, "Oh no, of course I don't own a television. I read books." Yeah, and if you would like to hear me read them for fourteen hours, you can come <laughs> to my house and possibly be my wife. Yes, I'm always reading aloud, so if that's your thing. Stop on by. I mean, that's the thing, right? We know, like, it's it's a it's a marriage. It's not a it's not a loving marriage that's gonna happen. No. Um. But he's also not like. He's uh, he's a prick, but he's not like a monster. Again, no, he's not, another, no. It's another character that like you expect to see that kind of thing. You expect to see yeah. a character that's like a real piece of shit, and he's not. But he's also like not great. Twenty twenty dark brain Jason expected that something real bad was gonna happen after she breaked up after she break after she broke up with him. Like that he was gonna like attack her or try to take advantage of her or something. Like that and, and then it just it didn't happen because that no. I mean maybe that I assume that sort of thing did happen back then, but it would be considered very inelegant. <laughs> Whether yeah. that mattered or not. <laughs> very inelegant to attack uh or in, other indelicate. People. To, indelicate, to, para, to uh, echo the old ladies from the beginning of the movie, indelicate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. And that quote you mentioned earlier, he actually says, I choose to engage in leisure um, yeah. as an example of my decadence. Yeah. And, that, and that's great. That's wonderful. You got that <laughs> kind of money. You can just be idle rich. And, and uh, what's what's cool is think, how they and, and worst sorry but and the worst is again this reminds me of these these people I may have gone to school with like they think they know, he thinks he knows something about the world because he's read a bunch of fucking books but he doesn't know shit. Well, that's the thing. I think we talked about I think we talked about a character like that before where they're just like they're a phony. Oh yeah, we talked yeah. about that with the uh, the Lady Killers remake. Yes. Right, like yeah. Tom Hanks in that movie, or even Alec Guinness in the original movie, more so. Definitely. Um, now he's not quite. I, I never got the sense that he's quite as condescending as as Cecil is, but but it definitely yeah. in that ballpark. Yeah, no, not necessarily just that, but the whole thing where they're kind of a phony, like they're they're reading this thing, and you know what? God knows, maybe they're not even reading what's on there. Maybe maybe the person is illiterate. We don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
but I like how they tie it in because we didn't really talk about this character a lot, but she's only in the first like 30 minutes, but Dame Judi Dench um, plays a novelist named Eleanor Lavish, by the way. And this is my favorite moment in the entire movie where Daniel Day Lewis is reading from her book. Yes. Um, we find out because uh, Lucy asks who wrote it. And she's like, oh, Eleanor Lavish. Like we went on. She was on that vacation with me in Italy. And he, when she asks him who wrote the book, he looks at it and says, Elino Lavish. <laughs> <laughs> like he can't just fucking pronounce the name. No. <laughs> he's doing a Jimmy Pardo bit of intentionally mispronouncing it <laughs> oh it's so good I'm just like yes he would fucking pronounce it like that you fucking <laughs> you fucking twit um, but yeah he says that and then through that whole device of like Judy Dench you know being in Italy uh, being with everyone else she finds out that Judy Dench has kind of written the sort of affair into her book mm, yes yes yeah, because she's like, oh, there's a, he's like, oh, there's a ghastly section here about a room with a view. And she's like, oh, do read that to me. And so, yeah, he re- he reads it. And, and, and yeah, basically recounts with, with most detail what happened in the field where, yeah. where George kissed her. And here's my question, Brendan, though. Like, they seem really put off about this, but, like, who's going to know? <laughs> like, who's going to figure yeah. out that it was her? The only person that, that literally knows is Eleanor and Charlotte. And and Lucy, those are the only three people in the world that know. And maybe George, if he deemed to read the book, but that's and, it. And I mean, I mean, we do find out that Charlotte is quite a gossip, though. That's true. She is. Yes. She uh, she has told more people than Lucy thought initially, which was zero. <laughs> well, don't you know if you're a spinster, that's your one outlet in life is gossip. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I believe I believe today, Brendan, that is uh, described as spilling the tea, if I'm correct. Oh, would you like to film the meme right now? Sure. Oh no, I spilled some tea. Oh, I thought you were just gonna go the. Oh, I see. I got you. Well, wait, I'll do a Baby Yoda style. Okay. There you go. I hope you, you all enjoyed can't that. see this, but Brendan can. I I saw it and I can confirm that it happened. Yes. And and a white <laughs> man has never lied. Never. <laughs> Most honest race. <laughs> Four hundred <laughs> years running, baby. Oh my God, I want out. Now, to be fair, we're all on the committee, but I still think we're right, right? <laughs> I mean, that's how it works, right? If you decide Ooh. the rules, um, you can't break them. White people, white people certainly are, aren't subject to conflict of interest rules. Never, never. never. Oh boy! So going to less depressing things of this movie. Um, <laughs> I, I no, I wanted to go back to Charlotte just for a second because we talked about her. I know I played that scene earlier of her, like, you know, uh, having issues accepting the offer from the, from the Emersons, but I actually want to play one more clip of her to really drive home her martyrdom because this is like just before they leave Italy. Um, she's worried that like Lucy's mother will find out about, about George kissing her. Cause she sees it, right. She sees it just as it happens. And, yeah. and she's, she's worried because Lucy tells her mother everything and she, <laughs> This scene is just her, like, you know, making sure that Lucy doesn't say anything in her own way. Comes. I shall face him. Oh, no, my dear, you will do no such thing. Oh, my poor dear girl, you are so young. And you've always lived among such nice people. You cannot realize what men can be. This afternoon, for example, if I had not arrived, what would have happened? I can't think. Answer me, Lucia. 
What would have happened if I had not appeared? You did appear. Oh, I have vexed you at every turn. It's true. I am too old for you. And too dull. It will be a push to catch the morning train, but we must try. Oh, I have failed in my duty to your mother. She will never forgive me when you tell her. Come away from the window. She will certainly blame me when she hears of it. Certainly. And deservedly. Why need Mother hear of it? Well, you tell her everything, don't you? I suppose I do, generally. There's such a beautiful confidence between you. One would hate to break it. And as I've said before, I am to blame. I wouldn't want Mother to think so. She will think so, if you tell her. I shall never speak of it, either to Mother or to anyone. We'll both be as silent as the grave. I mean, that's a technique. There's, yes. there's That's a very conscious technique right there. Technique, but also, you know, saving... I, I think she probably does have some legit concern that that would be a problem oh, yeah. for the mother, you know, in, in that era. And she doesn't want her own ass to get fried in that situation, so... She should join Michael Caine's uh, Self-Preservation Society. That's right. <laughs> I'd like to hear her sing that song. Um <laughs> But also, you know, again, uh, and and her being a single woman, an older single woman in a single white female, you know, she's her options are relatively limited for what she can do in her life. And I suppose she doesn't want to lose this gig (laughs) being her her, uh, uh, chaperone because it gets her out of the house. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know what? I know what I realized, too. I know we were I know we're kind of jumping all over the place, but I know when we were talking about the uh, the book earlier, when uh, Cecil was reading out of the book and you were saying, like, I don't know why she's so mad because. Yeah. um, But I think I think what it is, is it because, okay, we kind of set up Judy Dench, like the the novelist, as like a pretty good observer of human nature. Mm. And I think her writing about this passionate, um, you know, interest between these two characters that Lucy realizes that she's clearly talking about her and George. I think it's almost like, well, she can see it, but, but Lucy's got to be like in denial about it. Right. So I think she's like, it's like, it's like her battle, right? She's like, Oh, I don't want to admit that because I'm supposed to marry this doofus. Like I can't just be like, yeah, of course I'm in love with George. And, and if she's saying, well, someone else can see it clearly something exists there. And, and if this, this other person could see it, maybe, the people around me can too. That's true. Yeah. So that probably makes her mad. I mean, she, she acts like she's mad because it's in the book, but I think that might be where her real anger lies. Yeah. Also, uh, Jason, I'm just going to say this right now. Um, there is stiff competition now, uh, for women in love for that, for that wrestling scene. I had the exact same thought. Yeah. (laughs) There's a scene in this movie. You might argue is more homoerotic because we have three characters. Sure, sure. But I mean, they're not, they're only, they only wrestle a little bit. And I'll tell you this, watching it in fast motion while under the influence is pretty funny. (laughs) It's like a Benny Hill, it's like a Benny Hill skit. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have, uh, we have like George, uh, Freddie, who is like Lucy's brother, who we didn't really talk about a whole lot, and Reverend Beeb, and they all just decide to go take a shower. This is kind of like how a porn starts, right? It, it kind of <laughs> set up like a pornography. Well, they're and, taking a, they're going for a, a bathe in the river, and right. you know, back in Edwardian times, it was not you know unheard of for 
groups of boys who were going to go swimming to strip off and go naked. It's what you did. What I was shocked at is all the peen we saw. Yes, it was a lot of uh, a lot of peen uh, in this movie. It was. I, I wonder if, if if you'd have cut that, would they have had a different rating? So I lo- I looked this up because I was like, okay, if you have this, it has to be rated R in the U.S. But apparently there was just no rating in the states. Oh, I don't think it okay. had enough of a release. I mean, it did clearly have a release because oh, well, we'll get to the awards section later. But I don't think it was uh, enough for them to like really assign a rating because in the U.K. Yeah. it was PG because they're like, whatever, it's dicks, who cares? Yeah, it's 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 uh, just guys running around and then it's kind of a comedic scene. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's not like it's it's not meant to be erotic or anything. And, and they're all, I assure you, they're all totally flaccid the entire time. You assure, you assure us. I went through it with a fine-tuned comb to make sure. And <laughs> a, fi- a fine-tuned comb. A fine-tuned comb. And there is, I assure you, no fires in anyone's ovens. <laughs> um yeah yeah they're just like they're just like in the water and then they're chasing each other like jason said like benny hill and then the women see them of course and they're like oh oh, no but they're not but they're also not like like comedically scandalized like in a marx brothers movie or something like they just they kind of laugh it off you know because it's the brother right it's like it's lucy's brother it's like oh look he's running around naked again I think I think Lucy I think Lucy's mother is a little bit more scandalized than anyone else, but yeah, for the most part they're not like yeah, like you said they're not they're not a Marx brother reaction. <laughs> One thing that surprised me about this movie, because we talked about a lot of period romance, period drama movies, this uh, this had a happy ending. Yeah, I mean, just that alone it kind of shocked me. Yeah, with these sorts of movies, given like my track record with Down Abbey and various other types of period movies, there always seems to be a lot of tragedy. And that's understandable because, you know, life sucked in the old days and people were way more likely to die at any given time. But mm-hmm. not not so much in this movie. Everything pretty much works out. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she she goes off and, and marries George and Jason, mm. by God, they get that room with a view. Um, yes. I'd like to come back that- around. <laughs> I'd like to believe that this all happens because of George's speech um, to her later in the movie. Cause she basically at one point, by the way, this movie is separated by like these cool title cards. I really liked they're like chapters, but they're yeah. also like, they're also named, right? Yeah. Like lying to George lying yeah. to Mr. Emerson, uh, whatever. Um, weirdly, but anyway, on, on one hand, weirdly retro because it kind of calls back to silent film a little bit. Um, yeah. But also for kind of, foresight to hipster film because it also had a very Wes Anderson vibe. So I wonder if Wes Anderson watched this movie and like the, the use of it, or I mean, or any old movie that used title cards, but like, yeah, I just got a real Wes Anderson vibe from the title cards. Even the opening. Yeah. Even the opening credits gave a sort of Wes Anderson vibe, the way Mm. they announce each character and like their occupation. Um, and almost, and sometimes they're like their relationship to the main character. It's, yeah. it was interesting, but yeah, no, I was going to say, I, I wonder, um, I think it might be George's speech because Lucy decides basically to finally, uh, meet with George and tell him, you know, that kiss was nothing. It was a mistake. We're, we're I'm marrying Daniel day Lewis, greatest monster, history's greatest yep. monster. Um, and George gives this What's speech. Up? And I think this is a really well-written speech. Charlotte, please stay. Mr. Emerson, go out of this house and don't come back into it again as long as I live here. I can't. No discussion. Go, please. I don't want to call him Mr. Vyse. 
don't mean you're going to marry that man. You're being ridiculous. Oh, I would have held back if your Cecil had been a different person. But he's the sort who can't know anyone intimately, least of all a woman. He doesn't know what a woman is. He wants you for a possession, something to look at like a painting or, or an ivory box. Something to own and to display. He doesn't want you to be real and to think and to live. He doesn't love you. But I love you. I want you to have your own thoughts and ideas and feelings, even when I hold you in my arms. Miss Bartlett, you wouldn't stop us this time, not if you understood. It's our last chance. Do you understand how lucky people are when they find what's right for them? It's such a blessing, don't you see? And the fact that I love Cecil and shall be his wife shortly. I suppose that's a detail of no importance. This tremendous thing has happened between us. And what it means, let me explain, it means that nothing must hinder us ever again. That's what it means. You have to understand that. I've no idea what you're talking about. But everyone has to understand. And you must leave. So he's a little aggressive, but I mean, Ooh. I do think that speech is is very good and um, basically breaks down Cecil in a way. Now, what if that speech had been like in the rain? But then Elena Bonham Carter would have would have uh, would have looked at him and said, I'm sorry, is it still raining? Yeah, exactly. Is that That's the line? Exactly. Yeah. I think so. I, I I didn't realize it was raining. Or oh, is it still like raining? Yeah. I had. Is noticed. it still raining? Yes, that's it. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. That's a. That's that is a, a heartfelt scene. Um. And he makes good points. I was. I, I, it, it finally hit me. I was trying to figure out who Daniel Day Lewis's character Cecil reminded me of, and I realized it was Hitler. And I know that sounds crazy, but like I, I read a good chunk of Ian Kershaw's biography about Hitler last year, and talking about Hitler as a young man and he's would very much get along. I think with a guy like Cecil, because they have similar attitudes, uh, kind of this weird elitism and, and thinking they're smarter than everybody else and, and looking down on people. Like, I think they would have been uh, fast friends, Hitler and Cecil. (laughs) Does Hitler kiss as awkward as Cecil? I would have to assume so. I mean, I think one of his first relationships was with a cousin of his. So, (laughs) I mean, that's another great moment in this movie is when as Cecil asks if he can kiss yeah. Lucy. <laughs> Clearly, he's never kissed a human being. No, and and Daniel Day-Lewis deserves an Oscar for that kiss because yeah. it was so perfectly <laughs> awkward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he feels right. bad afterwards and she feels bad. It's just a complete mess and it's a perfect scene. Um. So I want to tell you, Jason, before we get into bits and bobs, um, I do have sure. some some background here about this movie as well. Um, this movie has been kicking, was kicking in Hollywood since like 1946. Wow. So in 1946, 20th Century Fox offered $25,000 for the film rights to A Room with a View. Um, but the author, the author of the book, E.M. Forster, didn't think too kindly of Hollywood and was like, nope. So uh, <laughs> he said no. And... Finally, when, you know, Forster passed away in 1970, um, the the board of King's College at Cambridge inherited his works or inherited mm-hmm. the rights to his books. And um, but the ex- chief executor of his will still turned down all the approaches. Um, and then finally, 10 years later, 
the film rights became became available when another person, a film enthusiast, a professor named Bernard Williams, became the executor of the will. And he was, yeah. like I said, he was big into uh, film. So he was like, yes, of course, make a movie. I can't wait. I'll be the first in line. Do I get free popcorn? Um, and uh, yeah, they 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 invited uh, Ismail Merchant and James Ivory. And the rest was history because they made that fucking movie, Jason. They did. Um, talk about a little bit about the casting too. Uh, so this is basically Helena Bonham Carter's breakthrough as an actor, uh, mm-hmm. playing the role of Lucy Honeychurch. Uh, she was 18 at the time, and she just finished a movie called Lady Jane, uh, which came out the year after. Okay. Um, <laughs> And she apparently she was cast because she fit the author's description in the novel of a young lady with a quantity of dark hair and a very pretty pale undeveloped face. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, Rupert Everett actually almost played Cecil, uh, oh. but then um, he auditioned for the role of Cecil and he wanted to play the role of George. Mm. Uh, but uh, but you know James Ivory was like I don't think you're quite right for it. So and very young I think. So Julian Sands, of course, got the lead. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis came in. Uh, he w- he came to the attention of James Ivory due to a play he was in at the time uh, where he played a gay character. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was given the choice, basically. They asked him, they're like, you're, you know, you're amazing. You're Daniel Day-Lewis. You may be history's greatest monster, but we love you. Yes. And they said, <laughs> they gave him the, role, the choice of George Emerson or Cecil. And he said, you know, I think Cecil is a much more challenging role to take this character and make him into a, you know, three-dimensional human being. And, and um, he does with that role what another actor might have turned into a cartoon. Yeah. it would have been so very easy to do so. And he didn't. He managed to just, he's ridiculous, but he's not unreal. Mm-hmm. And you got to respect that kind of ability for DDL to pull that out. Exactly. Good old DDL. Mm-hmm. Simon Callow, um, you know, from Four Weddings and a Funeral, uh, was the first choice for the character Harry. Remember there's that character they kind of mentioned a few times, Harry, the the, the guy who, like, um, is the oh, reason the, that the Emersons he, eventually move closer. Yeah, he's, he's like the, the guy, landlord. He's the landlord, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he was uh, he he wanted to uh, you know he wanted to play the role of Reverend Beeve and actually he had basically um, Simon Callow had created the role of Mozart in the original London stage production of Amadeus. Amadeus, Amadeus, oh oh, Amadeus. <laughs> exactly, and then he also mm. made his uh, film debut uh, in Amadeus in like a smaller smaller role, but mm. that's where he that's where he started. Mm. Um. Also, here's a question I have. Why do they call him Mr. throughout the whole movie? He's a reverend. Shouldn't they call him... Not, no, no, they have to call him... They call father. him reverend. Don't they call him Reverend do they, Beeb, don't they? Or vicar. Do they refer to him as a vicar? I think so. I think... You know what? I wonder... Now, going back, I wonder if it's only Mr. Emerson who calls him Mr. Beeb. Oh, maybe. It's... as a part Because, he, you know, he's talking about the working man. Maybe also he's got a thing against the clergy, too. Rightfully so. <laughs> He'll call him Mr. instead of reverend. Oh, you, Dr. Divinity meets nothing, asshole. It's another character we didn't really talk much about, but I think Simon Callow is perfectly charming in that part. Oh yeah, and uh, like he doesn't have a whole lot, like a whole lot of stuff, but every time he pops up, he's a, he's a welcome addition. But and, and it's interesting too because I get the sense from Four Weddings and a Funeral, and that Simon Callow as a person is a very boisterous character yeah. uh, of a man, and he is not quite that in this movie. The, a little bit of that comes through, but he's a much more subdued character than say like Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is literally the only other thing I have to compare. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, like I said earlier, when I said Daniel Day, Daniel Day Lewis was not interested in doing the Oscar campaigning, they basically mm-hmm. were like, "All right, well, Denim, you in?" And he's like, "Yeah, let's do it." So he uh, he was very enthusiastic, and he actually got his first Oscar nomination as a result. Um, yeah. Daniel Day Lewis also described, as I say though, but but awards wise, wasn't it also that he won his third of three uh, BAFTA supporting awards? Well, we'll find out soon. All right. Daniel Day-Lewis did, though, um, one of my favorite things about this is he described his own character as being, quote, the sort of person you imagine you might be in your worst nightmares. That's a good description. <laughs> that is nail on the head, man. Um, any like other big overall things you want to talk about before we go into bits and possibly bobs? Uh, it's a beautiful movie. It's uh, uh, like the, from a cinema, uh, cinematography perspective, it's it's colorful yeah. and it's it's all the things I've liked about other period pieces that are good, like where you have like this lovely landscapes and buildings. And of course, we see a lot of Italy and Italy is beautiful. And uh, yeah, so just a stunning movie overall. Now, I wouldn't say quite as nice as something like Chariots of Fire, but definitely in that in that realm. It, it, yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah, the cinematography is a sight to see for sure. Mm. Um, well, Jason, on that note, we are going to take a brief break. And uh, we're going to hear some ads from Age of Radio. And we will be right back with Bits and Bobs. Age of Radio. I just got the bits. I just got the bobs. I just got the bits and the bobs. Bits and bobs. Bits and bobs. Bits and bobs by Jason. Why is there so many English people in Italy? That's what I want to know. You ever noticed? You ever noticed, Brendan? How many uh, English people live in Italy? Do your type five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Strong Lady Cast was very happy to see, even uh, for a movie from the 80s. Like, this is some, as we said, some heavy hitters, and it was nice to see all in one place. I mean, uh, if you can't if you can't have diversity, let's at least have some male and female roles. That's right. Uh, those old ladies in the beginning of the movie were fantastic choices to play old ladies. They just had mm. the right look. Don't they also have that line, too, where, like, they're talking about... Because um, Lucy breaks off the engagement with uh, Cecil in that mm. scene, that, which, again, I can't stress I, enough. I think that scene is great, and I think that's mm. Daniel Day-Lewis's best acting in the whole movie. Sure. But don't they also have that scene where they're like, Lucy goes to see them, and then she leaves, and one of them is just like, she didn't look like she was engaged. And, and the other one's like... <laughs> yeah. The other one was like, well, how would you know you being the expert on that? <laughs> they had that little exchange, which I thought was funny. And she's like, she wasn't radiant. <laughs> yes. Cute, cute old ladies for sure. Yes. Uh, Ju- uh, Judy Dench's character sort of looks like Catherine Hepburn. Like she got the red hair and it's kind of pulled up and, and she just got that attitude. Certainly not the mid-Atlantic accent, but the real Catherine Hepburn vibe. I don't know if that was intentional, but that's what I got. She also looks very young. She does. Yeah, well, I mean, everybody's young in this movie. I mean, Maggie yeah. Smith has looked the same for years, but... That's true. But she's just a slightly smoother in this movie. <laughs> uh, I love the the usual English condescension, it seems, with regards to the Italians. Like, every time they're talking about the Italian people, they, oh, they're all just peasants. Don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> I just... It's that usual thing of English people being in a different country and thinking that they're better than everybody else. And nowadays, that's usually an American 
but at this time, you know, when the sun didn't set on the British Empire, it was definitely the, the British way of things. And may still I, be. I'd have to ask a British person. I also like the repeated uh, bits about Cecil saying how much he hates snobs. And I'm yeah. like, pot, kettle, black. I was listening to a, a knowledge fight today, and they were talking about Alex Jones. And Alex Jones had on that, uh, you know, the QAnon shaman, that guy, the fucking dude with the horns and the and the hair and everything that was. In, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. He was on that show, and at some point, Alex Jones was basically mocking him for being a shaman and and telling him that they had like ruined the uh, <laughs> they had ruined everything that was going to happen because of this storming. Even though Alex Jones was anyway, it, it, it's that kind of what I'm saying is it's that kind of like ridiculousness of like, oh, you're you guys are crazy, you're wrong. Oh, really, Alex Jones? They're crazy and they're wrong. <laughs> How could he in in any world call anyone crazy? I know, I know, it's ridiculous, but that's that's what I get from Cecil saying like complaining about snobs I mean, he's you know a snob a prima <laughs> yeah exactly god damn it um that asshole priest uh the old guy uh when they're in the car or when they're in the wagons getting or i guess the carriages going and he's like getting after the um uh, the carriage driver for snogging with his girlfriend who the well, carriage driver tells him it's his sister <laughs> yeah he does he says it's his sister and then, it's yeah, not it's, his sister no I, I don't I don't think that is a thing Italians do. I don't think and so. Then, I don't think they snog with their sisters. No, I'm I'm not gonna make that stereotype. Um but Jason, doesn't he don't don't they doesn't he get so mad that he makes them leave her in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the guy just he's like, ah, you gotta wait here. You gotta you gotta walk back. Can't have it. He gets so mad. He and isn't it ironic that a priest hates groping? <sighs> they weren't there yet, they were on their way. Yeah. I always suppose this was an Anglican priest, so maybe it's different. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, they, they have a picnic out in the, out in the field and it's very pastoral. And I wanted to mention that, like, I, I do like that aesthetic, even if I don't like the movies as much. Like we think of like, um, the go between and, uh, chariots of fire and, uh, uh which, uh, was it, you know, which Bronte did we watch? Sense and Sensibility? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like that sort of like era. And then, of course, Downton Abbey uh, for me personally. But yeah, I love that sort of pastoral look. And that scene is one of those great pastoral vistas as they're just sitting there and having a delicious bite to eat. Mm-hmm. Unshaded, though, I mean, I, I don't know about them, but I would bring an umbrella. It's very open and it could get very warm in that field. I do like in that scene, too, where because uh, um, George is running around free and yelling and uh, you know yeah. having a good time and uh, mr emerson is like you know paying attention to that and it's so loud and so like obtrusive but like the other two gentlemen that are there are just like butter please uh, yeah. uh, two sugars they basically sound like a british like george lucas <laughs> exactly they certainly wouldn't want to make a fuss yeah two, two, two sugar two, two sugar, sugar. i'd like a coke zero please and two sugars uh, first, uh, yes jar jar <laughs> oh yes oh he's so funny yes it reminds me of the minstrel days <laughs> oh oh dear <laughs> oh dear. It's an alien face you see oh no oh cancel cancel that man uh let's see what else we got here uh oh yeah now she uh, well fun bit with two hats i like the bit with two hats do you remember that when uh mr emerson is leaving is it emerson is that his name yeah yeah, Mr. Emerson's leaving, and George, he's like, aren't you coming with us, George? He's like, no, and he puts his hat on top of Mr. Emerson's hat, so he has two hats on, and then as he's going away, he tries to take his hat off to, like, say goodbye, and then he realized he got another one on, so he takes it off, too. <laughs> I missed that, that whole chaplain bit. Oh, it was great. It was great. It was a fun bit of comedy. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, when I saw Cecil for the first time, I thought, now she's engaged to some nerd? That's what he was, a nerd. 
nerd. You're like you're like that dude in Revenge of the Nerds. That's right. I the know, one I, with the I hate nerds. The one with the Darth Vader helmet, right? Yeah. Um. I don't think I don't think <laughs> we need to say that. <laughs> Terrible. A, I would never. I would never call credit. you. I would never call, call you that, a rapist. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it won't happen again. <laughs> And when that, okay, so that awkward kiss, I thought that there was going to be a bigger deal. Like, I thought that he was going to get, like, super mad at her and blame her for making it awkward, because he seems like the type, like, that it would be all her fault because he couldn't kiss her properly. Talk about Cecil? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that he would make a bigger deal out of that, but he didn't. So, I guess he's not complete, total piece of shit. Well, that's what I mean. Like, I, like, I think he's too, I think he's too demure and, like, you know, a bit of a nerd, like you said, to be that kind of monster. Yeah. And I, I think at some point, mom makes it pretty clear that she's not super fond of Cecil either and thinks he's a killjoy and an asshole. Well, neither is her brother. Yeah. Her, no, her they, brother no. is her brother is intentionally playing that really aggressive music and like singing yeah. at the top of his lungs to which Cecil <laughs> just like leaves the room. And then Lucy has to be like, no, 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 he doesn't. He doesn't hate Freddie. He just he just hates. What does she say? Is like he, he hates like things that are loud or something like that or things that something are like dumb like that yeah things that like, are ugly he doesn't hate to- people yes yeah he hates things that are ugly which is just totally her trying to justify his stupid behavior yeah. total abusive kind of situation there right or well, of course back then it was just you know it was how things were done you defended your husband or husband to be i imagine right uh, i yeah, i thought are- that Ultimately, Brendan, I thought this movie should have been a love story about freddie and george because they really hit it off and i think they that would have been more interesting yeah. Uh, this was 1985. That was not legal yet. Uh, I I laughed when he's talking when, when Cecil's talking about uh, uh, Miss uh, Evesham's book. Right. <laughs> he describes it as this book contains an absurd account of a view, yeah. <laughs> which immediately triggers her because she knows what's going on. But that's just such a weirdly generic and and strange thing to say. An absurd account of a view. But it also <laughs> doesn't seem. It also doesn't seem crazy that he would say that. You know what I no, mean? Like, no, that's absolutely something that would come out of his mouth. Yeah. But it's just it, in my head, I'm just like, what? Like, if you were describing the view out of a window, what would make it absurd other than something absurd in the view? Like, I, I do like I do like too that while that's going on, there's a tennis game and he gets hit in the like the throat and just kind of <laughs> yeah. like brushes it off and keeps walking. Because um, what's gonna do about it? It's like when they say, "Oh, don't you just wait till uh, I'll have to call Cecil." Like in that scene with George, it's like, "Well, I might have to call Mr. Cecil Vice." What's Cecil gonna fucking do about it? You yeah, think Cecil's, Cecil's gonna fight George? I don't think so. He he um. He also in that scene, like he uh, or later on, they try to get him to play tennis, and he's like, "No, yeah. oh, no, I'm one of those people. What do you say? It was just good for nothing but books." Yeah, a weird little bit of self-deprecation, but just clearly an excuse because he doesn't want to play tennis or do anything but, that's asked of him. But also self-deprecation, but also praising himself a little bit. Yes, I'm it's, so it's well read. Self wrapped in an alleged self-deprecation. It's it's politeness, right? It's it's you can be polite and sound like you're self-effacing, but then it turns out you're actually just an asshole. Yeah, it's a DDL special. Absolutely, DDL man, I fucking salute you, you yeah. monster. Uh, that's a ballsy move, that kiss on the stairs while Cecil's walking by. But also, I guess it's just George's confidence that Cecil won't pay attention to anything outside his own face. Oh, like when George, uh, well, that and that's, and then we should note that's shortly after they hear the book passage. Yes, yes. Because yes. I think that's also George realizing too. If, yeah. Uh, as as Cecil would say, Elinor Levisham has uh, has seen this passion. Then clearly she is hiding these feelings for me, and I'm just gonna go ahead and kiss her again. 
Um, yeah. Uh, but really, George gets right to the heart of um, the issue with the relationship between uh, Lucy and Cecil, which is that George wants her as a or George, George would rather her as a person, whereas Cecil wants her as a possession. Yeah, well, he would rather have Lucy. George would rather have Lucy with her own views, her own mm. thoughts on things. He's more interested in that, whereas yeah. Cecil is just like, well, I need a wife. He, he's like, yeah, the societal thing. It comes back to that. Like, well, I've got to have a wife, and I'll, you know, she'll be my wife, and I'll show her off, and she'll parrot my views and support me and do whatever I tell her to. Yeah, like the yeah. The, the president that just left. Uh, I, I like that all the last title cards were about her lying to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Lying to George, lying to Mr. Emerson, lying to Cecil. <laughs> and of course, they try to keep the breakup quiet, but there's too many connections with George, it seems, uh, that everybody kind of figures out what's going on. The, well, she wants to, yeah, Lucy wants to go to Athens to mm. hide from it all. She's like, I'm yeah, going to, to go to Greece. And Mr. Emerson is like, why are you going to Greece, dear girl? He's like, George loves you, and I know you love George. And yes. that scene at the end is is pretty sweet, too. Mm. I think that is. In the hotel room, you mean? Yeah, well, yeah where she's talking to uh, Mr. Emerson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And he basically tells her, like, come on, I'm no dummy. Uh, and by the way, um, I'm his father, and I only found out a week ago what was going on. <laughs> but he's like, yeah, come are. On. you guys love each other. And then it all finishes by coming around full circle, bookending the movie with that damn view again. Mm -hmm. That same room, that same view. But finally, Lucy has found what she needs in life, this man. And I do like how before they cut to that, they have the, this other couple and the girl's like, I can't believe we didn't get a room with a view. And then Helena yeah. Bonacarter's like, we have a view. And I thought, you assholes, you're not going to offer them the room with the view so that Fuck they can no, have these dude. Bad? Fuck you. Fuck no. Why would, why did, do you think George and Mr. Emerson needed the view so they can make out? Like, the... <laughs> I mean, it is Italy. Oh, dear. I know, I know they don't, I know they don't grow up their sisters, but I don't know what they do with their fathers. And, uh, any more bits and bobs, Jason? <laughs> nope, that's it. Bobs and bits, Bob. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's an odd way to put it, but I like it. <laughs> um, well, let's go into the uh, to the awards section of the podcast where we talk about all the awards this podcast has received. Uh, no. Ooh, um, rooftop Comedy 2008. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. On our platform. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the first time in a while where I actually have there, this this movie would struck gold at the at the awards ceremonies like this mm. was. Um, not necessarily winning all the Oscars or winning all the BAFTAs, but this was nominated for a lot of them. So yeah. we'll start with the Americans first and save the best for last, the British. Um, any idea, like, just any ideas what this may have, might have been nominated for? Because well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. Hold on. Wait, I'll tell you this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So eight categories in total. Three of them they won. Well, I would assume that right out of the gate, you're going to have a best cinematography, best costume design, and probably a best adapted screenplay. So costume design, adapted screenplay are two of the winners. No it also, oh, cinematography, it it's nominated. Okay. The winner best. for cinematography is The Mission. Okay, don't know that movie. Um, um, would it probably be like best score, maybe? No, the other win is for best art direction. And then all of the other remaining uh, categories. So best supporting actress, Maggie Dame Maggie Smith is nominated. Um, the winner that year is Diane Weist for Hannah and her sisters. Okay. Um, best supporting actor, Denim Elliott gets nominated. 
And the winner that year is Michael Caine for Hannah and her sisters. Michael Caine. Is Hannah and her sisters on our list? It, 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 no, I believe it's a Woody Allen film, so probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's British, and I don't think they want to claim him. Um, enough. Best director. Best director it's nominated. So James Ivory gets a best director nomination. Um, other nominees that year, because I think this is a, a really interesting year. Uh, Roland Jaffe for The Mission. Woody Allen for Hannah and Her Sisters. David Lynch for Blue Velvet. He actually got a nomination for that. But the winner that year, um, probably deservedly so, was Oliver Stone for Platoon. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, it was nominated for Best Picture. The nominees that year were The Mission, Hannah and Her Sisters, Children of a Lesser God, and the winner that year was, again, Platoon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) All right. Get ready for this, Jason. At the BAFTAs. It is. These are the ones it is nominated for, but does not win. It is nominated for Best Director, which was won by Woody Allen. Best Supporting Actor for Denim Elliott and... British. What? You just told me Woody Allen wasn't British. Well, he doesn't have to be British to win Best Director. That's horseshit. <laughs> it's, nominated for, it's nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Denim Elliott and Simon Callow, but it's, run by, it's won by an actor named Ray McNally for The Mission. Um, best supporting actress for Rosemary Leach, who actually plays uh, the mother in the movie. Oh. And I forgot to look up who actually won, so fuck me, I guess, right? Oh. Um, <laughs> nominated for best adapted screenplay, won that year by Out of Africa. Okay, yeah. Uh, best cinematography, also won by Out of Africa. Best editing, won by The Mission. Best original music, won by The Mission. Best sound, won by Out of Africa. But the things that it wins are. Best Lead Actress for Dame Maggie Smith. Mm. Best Supporting Actress for Judy Dench. Wow. Uh, best Costume Design. Best Production Design. And it wins Best Overall Film. Interesting that they considered uh, that she was a support, that Maggie Smith was a supporting actress in the American version, or in the American version of the awards and leading actress in the BAFTA. Oh, no, no, it was supporting for both. Oh, was it? Oh, you yeah. said lead. No, no, they were both nominated for supporting actress uh, for for the uh, for the Yanks and the Cranks. <laughs> That's what we're gonna call them, right? Yeah. Um, this movie it received it does have that rare one hundred percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and uh, and yeah, Roger Ebert gave the movie four out of four stars. It says it, it is an intellectual film, but it's intellectual about emotions and encourages us to think about how we feel instead of simply acting on our feelings. The movie cost $3 million to make, and it made seven times its budget back, $21 million. A fair return. Jason, a room with a view. What's the view look like for you? That's fine. That's fine. These, this, this is doesn't stand out to me amongst the various period pictures that we watched. It's perfectly fine, uh, and I like Helen Bonham Carter. You know, lots of good performances. D- DDL, of course, classic as always. But like it, it, I don't know. It didn't resonate with me, and you know, it's it's fine. It's fine. That's all I've got for you, Brendan. We talked all about it, but it's fine. You can you know, I, I, I was actually quite surprised that it was as commercially successful as it was, because usually these sorts of movies aren't that. Uh, and this was the one that broke through. So, well, this was I salute this was, them. Yeah, this was Merchant Ivory's big movie. Like this was their yeah. breakthrough movie. Um, 
I mean, Sense and Sensibility was a big hit too when it came out for sure. Um, And of course, being an awards, I mean, this many awards getting nominated for and stuff, I think that helps boost the box office a little bit as well. Now, I I would say certainly the other Merchant Ivory film we've watched uh, was The Remains of the Day, if I'm correct. Yes. And and that movie I I really like like that is a classic that is really good and and I don't necessarily put this in the same category it just it didn't compel me nearly as much I don't know if that's the lack of Anthony Hopkins uh, perhaps but I think we know it's the lack of Emma Thompson that's a big part of it too um, but I mean if you like period pieces you can't go wrong with this movie it's it's a perfectly acceptable enjoyable period piece but uh, you know it's it's one among many on the PFI. <laughs> I, I do think my favorite of all these like kind of period pieces is probably still Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. Um, these kinds of like the, you know, the beautiful like cinematography sweeping shots and everything. I still think that one stands above. Mm-hmm. Um, I still enjoyed this more than I did the go between. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a solid movie. I, I, I really do like Merchant Ivory films is based on my viewings of two of them. Yes. <laughs> Um, it kind of makes me want to go and watch like a passage to India and a couple of other movies that they made over the years. Was that, was that David Lean's last movie? Uh, yeah, but it was a Merchant Ivory production, I think. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I've never seen that one. Yeah, no, I haven't either. It's one of the few David Lean movies I haven't seen. Thanks to this list. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Would you have ever watched Brief Encounter, Jason? Probably not. Probably not. And I'm, and I'm so fucking glad I did. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I mean, yeah, I will say, uh, at this point. It, we're getting to the point now where like we've done a lot of the same same ish kind of movies, and so it's easier for me now to say stuff like, "I don't know if we need this one." Yeah. Like I like it. I think it's good. Yeah. It's very well made. It's very well acted. Daniel Day Lewis in this movie is phenomenal. Everyone in this yes. movie is great. Daniel but... Day Lewis, uh, far and beyond this, like his performance in this movie is is enjoyable and and yeah. uh, definitely be remembered by me long after we're done this uh, run of movies. But like, do we need this and Sense and Sensibility and The Go Between and Far from the Madding Crowd, and you know all these other like same-ish movies? Like, I don't think we need that many of the same. It's my same argument I make for the kitchen sink dramas. I don't think we yeah. need that many. <laughs> but I suppose. But I would also make the argument too that both the kitchen sink drama and this type of kind of period piece are very much British formats are very much you know just something that's very important in british cinema they are but that's like, why there's so many but again i go back to this like how many horror movies are on this list like uh, two just the two i mean that's and, crazy and what, if, and what if maybe attack the block deserves to be on this list i don't know i haven't seen it maybe maybe well jason i know we are remote right now but you're gonna have to put your trust in me because it's it's time for the dice roll well, sometimes you got to have faith, Brendan. you got to have faith. The faith, do, the faith. Do, do, if I could touch your body. I know not everybody has got a got body, a body like, like me. Ooh. I was just doing the uh, Limp Bizkit version. Oh, no. Get out. <laughs> you're, 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 a real, you're a real fanatic. That's right. <laughs> so this is the point of the show, Jason, where we roll the dice to find out what movie on the BFI Top 100... We, <laughs> sorry, I had to laugh because Jason started scratching his belly. It was itchy. Um, <laughs> we're going to find out what movie uh, we talk about next week on the show by rolling these dice because the number that we get on this dice will correspond with the number on the BFI Top 100. And the movie that is that number is the one we are going to talk about. 
This is all very simple, and if you can't understand it, then maybe you shouldn't fucking listen to this podcast, you dummy. Wow, just alienate everyone, please. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can see this. I'm making sure the camera can see this here. Uh, we've got a green Tens D10 and mm-hmm. a red uh, D10. And since and... I'm the only person that's seeing that, I can confirm that is the case. Okay, perfect. And now I'm going to outright lie to you when I roll the dice. <laughs> All right. Do you have the list ready, Jason? Why, yes, Brendan. Of course I do. So I'm going to roll the green one first, the 10s D10. And then I'm going to roll the other one, and we're going to find out what movie we're going to talk about. This is exciting. It's very exciting. It may, take, it may take 85 tries at this point. This may be a while, so buckle Here up. Here we go. Here we go. All right, we're in the 30s, Jason. 30s, all right. Here we go. All right, let's see here. 38. 38. Oh, well, there you go, Brennan. Uh, wow. Next week, our movie will be the 1991 Alan Parker film, The Commitments. Huh. Yeah, which I've okay. heard of that movie before, but I know very little about it. I think it's about a musical group. I'm not sure. I Yeah, I believe you are correct there. I, I have also heard about it and for some reason have owned it on DVD for many a year and never watched oh. it. So. Now's, your, now's your opportunity. I don't know if I still have the DVD, but I'll still watch it. Well, you find that DVD and then mail it to me. Okay, and then you'll mail it back, and I'll watch it. That's right. <laughs> you guys, this this episode is coming up in four weeks, because this might take yeah. a while. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, cool. We're staying kind of uh, recent-ish in terms of this list. 1991, The Commitments, number 38. We'll talk about that next week. Um, Almost, uh, this would be the 30th anniversary of that movie, actually, this year. Oh, interesting. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, no, it almost. I mean, it would be. 1991 to 2021, that's 30 years. Yeah. Right on the dot, Jason. Yeah. There we go. Hopefully that movie came out in like the early part of 2021 and then we could really nail it down. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll talk about that next week. But until then, um, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, at BFI underscore pod. You can find us on Facebook by searching for For Screen and Country. Uh, you can find Jason on Twitter. That's at Jason D. McLeod, M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Sometimes I drop some dank memes. Sometimes I just rant about work. But all the time, I'm there for you, baby. I'm there for you, the fans. That's why I live. I live for the fans, yo. And sometimes he falls in love with men named George. Well, it's hard not to. They're curious. George sees me as a person and not a possession, Brendan. And that resonates. I'm pounding my my chest Celine Dion style right now. (laughs) I hate to be the one to tell you, uh, but George is just a curious monkey. Oh, actually. You're actually in love with the man with the yellow hat. I do like a yellow hat. Well, we're going to have to figure this out, Jason, off air. All right. Um, (laughs) But until that time. Yeah, we'll make some calls. We'll we'll, uh, hold some delegations. Um, But until we talk about the commitments next week, I just have to say to you... God save the queen. God save the screen. And for screen and country, I'm Brandon. And I'm Jason. I'm in love with you. I'm a person, not a possession. You can't just love me like I'm a thing. Damn it. A room with a view and you And no one to worry us No one to hurry us this dream we found We'll gaze at the sky And 
fire To guess what it's all about Then we will figure out why The world is round We'll be as happy and contented As birds upon a tree High above the mountains and sea We'll build and we'll coo And sorrow will never come